This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 182 of TechSig, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, our very special guest is Matt Conda, who is an application security expert. Hey, Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, Justin, thanks. So, uh, Matt, uh, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, I wanted to give a little background on how, uh, how we know each other, which is through a mutual friend, Dave Kovar. Um, Dave, I went to school, or I went to college with Dave, and hey, you know him because he lives across the courtyard from you in Chicago? That's that right. We, right. We live, um, there's sort of a gated courtyard and our kids run around with each other. And while our kids run around, he and I uh, chat about our latest books that we're reading or technologies we're playing with. And uh, he came to find out sort of what I do in security. And I guess that's become a main topic of our conversations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So is it... Dave's a, a big uh, computer geek. He's a, he's actually a has a PhD in physics, but has like most people in physics got sucked into the computer world. And uh, in a recent conversation, he said, "You know, you he's like I have the guy you need to talk to. You have to get Matt on the show, talk about <laughs> security." And I'm like, "All right, we'll we'll do it." So, um, so that's that's what led to this. Um, and uh, yeah, Matt, I really appreciate you taking the time to 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 be on the show with us. And we just to let you know we've been wanting to get a security expert on for, I don't know, months, if not years, yeah. because it's such an interesting topic. And as developers, I think we're aware of a lot of issues, but we're not experts in the issues. We try and pay attention to things that we think we should be paying attention to, like, you know, you know, uh, hashing passwords and preventing SQL injection and, and, and cross site scripting, stuff like that. But we also, we're also aware that there's a lot of other stuff going on that we need to know about. So um, we've, we've been, Wanted to get someone like you on the show for a long time. Cool. Well, it's, I mean, it's really, I feel lucky to get a chance. Um, yeah. Well, the, the, the other really cool thing, uh, and we'll, we'll get into this later in the show, is that, so you're not only a, an application security expert, you're also an entrepreneur. So you recently started your own company, um, not just a consult, security consulting company, but a company that's going to come up with some products to help developers build uh, build more secure uh, sites, right? That's right. So, so I, I mean, I've sort of been a, a developer by trade for, you know, decades, it feels like. Um, and um, the last five years I've been at security companies. And, um, you know, one of my main frustrations, um, which was not specific to those companies, was just that there's such a big disconnect between security professionals and developers um, in terms of what, developers need to be thinking about in the way of security. So, you know, you just mentioned SQL injection and cross-site scripting. From a security perspective, one of the biggest developments, in my view, is that the bar for executing these kinds of attacks has gotten so low now that you almost have to assume that you're going to get attacked. It's not like, it's not like oh, if somebody's really after you, they're going to come and then they're going to work really hard and figure it out. It's like, somebody's pointing a tool at you and they're going to see that you have a vulnerability and then they're going to exploit it. And so developers not, you know, really tuning in and thinking about this actively becomes a big problem. All right. So Matt, why don't you uh, start by giving us a little background on how 
you uh, transitioned, how you got into the software development and then transitioned into security specifically? So it's actually funny how I got into software development. That might be a, a neat little story, but um, basically I, I, I got out of school and started writing COBOL. <laughs> huh. um, but within not very long, I managed to get myself onto a project where we were using Perl and this was before Mod Perl, so we used to embed Perl and Apache using custom C code, which was pretty cool. Um, then after that, I sort of have gone from doing um, small product companies, um, embedded devices, analytics, stuff like that, to uh, um, security now. And, and I've done consulting along the way. And um, what I learned over my time at the security companies was that essentially developers don't know as much about security as they maybe should. Um, and that's kind of what led me to start a new company, basically um, with the primary goal to provide developers with tools to visualize security um, and to help them understand, you know, if their application is being attacked and, and stuff like that. Right. So, but you spent a number of years, I think you, you have an expertise in Rails, right? So you sounds like you spent some time actually developing Rails applications. Yeah, I've spent some time building in Rails, and I'm building in Rails now, actually. Um, and um, that's definitely an area of focus. Um, I've used a lot of sort of Java and Spring also. Um, so Perl was definitely all long, long ago, and since then it's been mostly Java and Ruby. Okay, so when you were doing, uh, when you were doing Rails, I mean, was that all in the context of security, or were you just a straight-up developer at that point? Uh, it's basically all been in the context of security. I've done a bunch of Ruby development that's not in the context of security, okay. but not Rails. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. Okay. So so it sounds like most of your development, you've always been in the security or most of your time has been spent in the in the context of security. You weren't just, say, a pure developer for 10 years and then you kind of segued your way into the world of application security. Um, so it's sort of somewhere in between. So not to give a more complicated <laughs> answer than you probably want, but... You know, so I did a master's thesis in security, and then I did what I would consider sort of pure development for 10 years, and then I've been doing security for five. Right, right. So it's okay. kind of a mix of both. Okay, okay. Well, why don't we get into um, just some of, the, uh, some of the issues that, as, as developers, we, we, we screw up. I mean, um, I know there's the, the what's called the OWASP, or Open Web Security, uh, Application Security Project, and they have like a top 10 list. Mm -hmm. Things and um, I don't know. We could go through some of that or some of your own uh, experiences of what you what you see are the are the, are the critical problems that we're uh, we as developers are screwing up. Sure, I mean, so OWASP is a terrific resource um, for it's re it's really for both developers and security professionals, and they produce a top ten list, which basically um, for web applications and also for mobile applications. And the basic premise is that you know, here are the top things you need to worry about. Um, the, the, the sort of real, realistic problem that I think OWASP has is that people in the security community are very familiar with it and contribute to it a lot, but developers don't know so much about it. I did some research that um, surveyed developers, and a lot of them were fairly senior developers who either hadn't heard of OWASP or didn't really know very much about the details. And so some of the work I'm doing is to try to help OWASP or work with OWASP to, to get um, 
developers to pay to be involved in the process there. I just want to quickly say that o- OWASP sounds it's 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 one of those things you don't quite know how to spell it when you hear it. So it's O W A S P, and you can just Google OWASP and uh, or you can go to OWASP.org to find out about that. Right, and so for for example, some of the top few items in the OWASP top ten are SQL injection and cross-site scripting, which many people know about, but, um, you know, many people also underestimate the prevalence of them. Um, for, as an example, um, you know, I worked, worked in, in Java with, with Hibernate, and people thought that if you're using Hibernate, you're just not going to have SQL injection problems, but you absolutely can if you're not careful about how you handle strings. Um, similarly, people tend to say, oh, well, cross-site scripting is just going to make it, the page look bad. Um, they're not necessarily very creative about what they think people are going to do with cross-site scripting. I mean, fundamentally, when you get cross-site scripting, you're running code in somebody's browser. So um, suppose I could put um, JavaScript in any foo, for example, that would run when somebody was there that did a port scan of their internal network, right? Well, now... I'm looking at hosts and ports that are open in their network, not, you know, publicly exposed. And so the, the, the examples of what you can do with these, these kinds of um, compromises are, I don't want to say unlimited, but they're very serious. And people tend to, to sort of, I think, downplay cross-site scripting, particularly as like, oh, well, it's cosmetic or something like that. Or, oh, yeah, I got an alert box with a one in it when I did that <laughs> test. Okay, so if I, so if I go to a website and they have a cross-site scripting vulnerability, then they could, what you're saying is they could do a port scan of my network, not, not of the company's network, right? So because it's running in my browser? Right. It's and, running in your browser, right? So it's basically, I mean, you could think of it as code execution in your browser. Let's go on to, you know, the, I want to go back to this, uh, the SQL injection. Um, I, mean, the, the, I mean, the normal way that you do that or the, I guess the, the recommended way you do that now is using bound parameters, right? So in PHP, I use the PDO library. So every, every value, every string that's, that's not, that represents a value or whatever is, or that comes from an external source or anything, is bound to a parameter. So it's a double or an int or you know, a character string or whatever. Um, but, it, but it seems like we're seeing in the news, there's a lot of cases where sites get they fall they fail that vulnerability issue like the one with uh do you, i don't do you, do you remember reading much about the hb gary uh, uh fiasco that happened when anonymous broke into their site and basically destroyed <laughs> destroyed their servers and everything and it was it was ultimately i guess they screwed up a lot of things like reusing passwords and uh things like that and they also did some social engineering problems but they ultimately fell victim to basic uh sql injection from their website. Yeah, so I think HP Gary was definitely SQL injection. In fact, a lot of the anonymous attacks have been SQL injection. And I mean, I think I had a note in my blog the other day that somebody at Barclay Card said that 97% of the attacks they see are SQL injection. Mm-hmm. You know, right. part of that is because you can fire up a tool that'll keep trying to do things and essentially grind against your site and look for fields that might not be bound. There may be a reason why you're doing some kind of calculation on some input or, you know, I mean, string, string concatenation is sort of too obvious almost, but let's say you're doing something with a date or, and then concatenating it, right? If you, even if you do that, um, you know, there are chances where 
where you may not do it correctly. And the other thing is a lot of people don't use bound parameters. They, they just don't. They do, they try to sort of manually detect, um, you know, semicolons or select or something like that. Right. And the, the problem with that approach is that it's, you know, people learn how to encode the input so that it doesn't look like a select to you. Right. It's like in some sort of Unicode that, you know, doesn't doesn't visually look like what you think. And so your filters become sort of stale and primitive. Does that make sense? Don't, for example, the like MySQL escape or something like that, don't they deal with those kind of things? They do if you do it. <laughs> so Justin, that's what you do with EasySQL, right? You use the, you do the escaping. You don't actually use the bound parameters, right? Yeah, so basically I, I wrap MySQL escape around everything that ends up in SQL. So is that okay, or, or is there ways that that can be ha- hacked? Um, unless there's a flaw in the MySQL escape that I don't know about, that's fine. Hmm. Right? Okay. So, and that's what you want to be doing. I think the problem is, you know, a lot of people aren't aware of the issue or aren't very um, rigorous about following the right practice. You know what I'm saying? I mean, something that I do quite a lot is check if if a value is numeric you know how sometimes you you put stuff in a, an sql string and it's just a number yep. so i'll check i'll just check to, i'll use the php function to check is numeric and only then will i've kind of passed it into the string mm-hmm. um so but then in that scenario i'm not using um any kind of escaping i'm just relying on the fact that is numeric got it right right and again if is numeric doesn't have any kind of issue i think you're fine there was an interesting PHP, this is in PHP, right? Yeah. So there isn't. There was an interesting discussion in PHP land recently between uh, Stefan Esser and um, Gabriel Joy, I think. So a developer of PHP and a security researcher um, who were kind of going back and forth pointing fingers because if you compare two strings of numbers, so you have two different strings, but they're all numeric, yeah. And they're the same until the last digit. And they're, I can't remember exactly how many characters it is. PHP will actually say that they're the same. They're equal because it will try to cast them into a number and it goes beyond the precision of the number. Right. Um, so, so again, I, I don't want to say that there are always flaws in that kind of thing, but it's something that you'd have to be careful about. If that is numeric could be tampered with in any way, like you could potentially have an issue. What about the fact that... Um I mean, a site like Plugio, for example, uh, isn't particularly interesting to hack, I don't think. Maybe it is. But a, lo- a lot of people are making sites that aren't, I would imagine, maybe I'm being naive here, just aren't interesting to hack. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's a great, a great point. And I think part of what gets difficult with security is, is understanding from a practical standpoint what your risk is. Um, and that includes not just, you know, who's going to hack you, but what the value of the data is. Um, I think the, the, the point that I would make is that there are an increasing number of, well, there are a huge number of automated um, processes now, right? So if you just, I mean, security researchers like to say, you know, if you put a Windows box directly on the internet, somebody's going to own it in five minutes, right? Now that may not be true of the current, most current version of Windows, but at some points in time, that was true, right? Hmm. You have to assume that, that somebody's writing scripts or using something that's just going through all the hosts hosted in your hosting site, for example, looking for open ports, thinking about what may be vulnerable, right? And it may be your application. It may be something underneath your application. 
application. Somebody who's going to look at the details in your application is probably highly motivated and has a specific reason for looking. Um, because although you can run automated scans, sort of grind through the application looking for cross-site cross scripting and SQL injection and um, other types of vulnerabilities, you're, you're not... It, there's a lot of interpretation that goes along with that. And it takes... I mean, it, that's why pen testing exists. It sort of takes more than just a tool to determine for sure whether that vulnerability is going to be, um, you know, something that can be leveraged into a compromise. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been hacked numerous times via scripts like WordPress or um, or Drupal or something like that. So I guess I guess because people understand, they can look at the the meat of the software, they can understand it, so they can work out clever hacks. But if you if you're creating something that's just not particularly interesting and it's your own code, I would imagine that unless it's some basic port hack or something like that, then probably not going to try and hack your site. So. Certainly could be. Um, you know, one thing that that people don't always realize is how how much information about you is out there, and so. Um, one technique that's fairly common is, you know, as part of a pen test would be like a Google, Google dorking, it's called, right? So you basically use... <laughs> wait, wait, what is that called? Google dorking? Yes. <laughs> that's a great... I'd never heard that before. Okay, so what's what, Google what, dorking? Yeah, what's... What is so that? it's basically using Google to find vulnerable sites. And so, you know, a, a, as I'm sure you know, you can restrict the context of your Google search by saying, you know, site colon whatever, and then searching for different kinds of things. Well, people write scripts that look for certain common kinds of things and then just run them against Google. And if there's anything that I can see, if there's anything I can see in your, you know, HTML that Google sees that gives me a hint about what you're doing, um, you know, whether it be a framework like WordPress or a even just a library, um, you know, for example, it's probably pretty easy to figure out whether somebody's using jQuery, right? So... So that, that by itself can lead you to certain types of, of areas to focus. Now, again, that's not a technique that people are going to necessarily use. So like for, for WordPress, somebody might use a simple Google search to find WordPress sites that still have like an install script. Um, so that's actually a vulnerability that somebody I, I work with um, and I'm presenting with later this week, actually, um, developed, which is, is that if you don't complete a WordPress install, or if you're on a hosted site where they give you WordPress, but you never install it, um, basically you're vulnerable because somebody else can run that install with a database that's remote. And then by injecting stuff into that database, they can actually take over the server that WordPress is running on. It's a pretty complicated, it's a complicated attack, but by searching in Google, you can find like, yeah, it's a WordPress install page, right? And so you don't even need to know, you may not know anything about the site you're attacking. You might just get a list of them and go one by one or write a script to do it, you know? Wow. So do you have any, any stories or any good examples of where some sort of more sophisticated SQL injection hacks have occurred? Um, SQL injection, not so much because it's sort of a simpler type of attack. I mean, I, I, I guess there's a variety of spins on SQL injection, things like blind SQL injection, where you're, you know, you're sending requests and based on timing or other things, you're determining whether you've actually succeeded in injecting into the SQL that's getting run. Mm -hmm. um, 
a good example of just a general um, sort of breach slash issue that might be an interesting one to talk about is um, what happened with GitHub and Rails in March. I don't know if you guys right. saw that. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah, because we had to go in and I, I can't remember what we had to do. We had to change our keys or something like that. I forget what we had to do because you couldn't, or you had to do some kind of verification because you couldn't uh, you couldn't access your repos unless you updated something, right? Yeah. Which was actually a good response from GitHub. I was impressed with that because um, they could have potentially done less. But the vulner- do you guys know about the vulnerability that was sort of behind all that? No, why don't you, why don't you uh, talk us through it? Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, so GitHub is built on Rails. And in Rails, there's a concept called mass assignment. And mass assignment is where you basically, you can, the easy way to think about it is you're submitting a form and behind the scenes, the controller or the back end is going to say, okay, set all the parameters based on this form input onto this object and then save it. Right. Okay. And so what's interesting is that it's like passing a hash almost, right? And Rails is magical and sort of turns the hash into the object. Right. Or sort of calls the setters appropriately or sets, sets the state appropriately. Right. Well, what, what Rails was not doing was restricting you from being able to set certain values on those objects. So, for example, you have a user object that may have an email and maybe there's an admin Boolean um, this is actually an example Mike Hartle had. Um, and basically, you know, you, you pass in a user object and you set admin, even though you shouldn't be able to set admin through the UI. If I send a request that supplies that, the backend will happily do it. And so what the, the problem is, is that the model has no concept that you shouldn't just be able to set admin in bulk like that. Does that make sense? Right. So there should be yeah. some attribute or something that says this, this, um, property, this model property cannot be set through mass assignment. Exactly. Like and, those, and those exist. So Rails has a concept of adder at at protected, which will okay. prevent you from setting, setting that through mass assignment. Um, and then it also has, but, but that's kind of a, a blacklist approach, meaning, you know, you go in and you say adder protected um, admin, right, which is the property. And that means that admin is now protected, but if you add more stuff, it's still going to be exposed. So sort of the preferred way to do it is to expose the ones you want to expose, basically whitelist the ones that you want to let people change, which is using this attribute accessible flag. And you could always do this. Rails always supported doing this um, sort of in your model by, you know, object by object. And the, the problem was, or the sort of the issue that people had was that the default in Rails wasn't a, the default was open instead of closed, essentially. Right. And so kind of the interesting discussion was, you know, this guy basically submitted this as a bug to Rails and Rails said, we don't care. We don't think this is an issue. Submitted it to GitHub, ended up posting an issue to GitHub, and then later making himself a committer to the Rails project in GitHub and posting something, posting a file into the Rails project via this Rails vulnerability. So it's kind of an interesting issue because it, you know, he sort of makes the two eat them, eat each other, you know, it's sort of like the pointing fingers back and forth. Right. And then sort of most fundamentally, you know, a lot of people thought, well, that's a GitHub problem or, oh, that's a Rails problem. And, and the question that it raises is, you know, should you write a framework like Rails to be secure by default when, 
you know, most people are trying to follow the convention with Rails. That's what makes it a, a fast platform to develop in. Um, and don't want to go, you know, tweak something just to do security, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Right, so they had kind of, so it's convenience versus security. So the convenient way is like, you know, I don't want to have to go and add an attribute or, or whatever to every single property. That's annoying. I'd rather just the ones that need to be blacklisted, as you say, um, or what's it called, uh, you know, protected, do that. Whereas you can see, so I, you can totally, I, I, I can understand from, a, from the, for the, why they would do that, but you're right. I mean, security probably trumps convenience or efficiency and coding efficiency. Um, so what, no, there was a, there was a big complaint. I, remember, so I, yeah, I don't, I didn't follow it that, that deeply, but I did read at least one or two blog posts on the subject and, and people were pretty upset with, with GitHub that they didn't uh, respond quickly enough. They weren't, they weren't uh, proactive enough or they weren't honest enough or some things like that. I don't remember exactly what all the complaints were, but which was sort of surprising because GitHub is kind of a beloved site in the hacker tech world. Um, so if anybody would be cut slack, it would seem it would be GitHub. So do you, do you, do you recall what, what the complaints were? Yeah, I mean, there, were, there were a number of flows kind of back and forth about this, I thought. I mean, initially when the guy first disclosed it, a lot of people were angry at him actually um, because they thought that he wasn't being responsible in the way that he disclosed it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, basically he posted a file into the Rails project and then sort of posted about this vulnerability in GitHub and GitHub sort of hadn't had a chance to respond. Um, now in the general security community, I mean, typically if you find a vulnerability, this sort of the, the standard vulner, vulnerability disclosure process is that you let the vendor or the person who's building the, the code sort of know. And I mean, often it's weeks, months, sometimes quarters, years before things get fixed. And a lot of times, a lot of people will disclose after the vendors fix the problem. And so, right. you know, people think he should have waited until GitHub had fixed it. Um, I think the other side of that story is, you know, it was a big deal. Probably he's not the only person that knew about it. Um, you know, on some level, GitHub should have fixed it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> how long, how long, how much time elapsed from when he notified them to when it was everything days, happened? I, I want to say that it, I want to say he'd been notifying Rails and GitHub independently for, for I think weeks. But when he actually posted the file, it was just a couple of days before GitHub had a response, which I thought was pretty good. Right. Actually. Well, why, why do you think they couldn't fix that like right away? I mean, if you get a security vulnerability, I mean, why can't you just go and fix that in a couple hours? I mean, the fact, I mean, there were websites, right? We can just make a fix and push it, especially if it's just a matter of setting some attributes to protect it. Well, so, so the interesting thing about this was actually, I mean, I think they, I, I honestly think they did fix it pretty fast once they decided to, once they understood what the issue was and they decided to fix it. I think they fixed it. Okay. Fast. Um, something like this could have surprising repercussions, other places in the application. Like there might be places where you're depending on being able to set something through mass assignment and that might not be immediately obvious. So you might have to look through code to find out. Right. Right. Another yes. problem that they probably had, because I didn't see a lot of, discussion about it. And this is sort of where when you don't see discussion about something, you sort of wonder, um, you know, they may have been trying to figure out how big the problem might've been. And, and 
if you go into GitHub now and you go look at your key history, it'll show you since March when your keys have changed, but it doesn't show you before that. And so sort of by absence, it makes me infer that, you know, they don't have that information. And furthermore, sort of their recommendation to GitHub users was, hey, go check your repos and make sure that you haven't seen commits from people that shouldn't have been there, or, you know, sort of check the, the history. You know what I mean? Right, right. And right. on some level, that's a huge burden for all the GitHub users. And I mean, this is sort of fundamentally GitHub's most important value to their users, right, is the integrity of the, the code. That's like the whole point. Um, so, I, I mean, there's parts of the story that make me think this is an even bigger deal than people thought. Um, but I actually think that, you know, sort of in our real world, GitHub and both GitHub and Rails responded pretty fast because in the following week, I think it was like a Friday that he posted the file on a Sunday that GitHub updated their, their code. Um, it was in the next week that Rails had changed their default behavior for this property so that if you started a new Rails project, by default, you'd have to go and say, I want somebody to be able to change this instead of by default saying, you know, you can change anything until I tell you you can't. <laughs> right, right. So this kid, if I remember correctly, he was like 19 or something like that. He was like Russian, some Russian 19-year-old yeah. or something like that. I mean, yeah, he was he, just... Yeah, he, was, he, was a, he was a pretty young guy. So you, you can understand for if, if someone that young, why they might be a little impatient. <laughs> Right, like a mature security researcher might give them like, all right, well, I'll give you uh, uh, six weeks or three months, and then I'm gonna disclose at this next conference what I found. You know, yeah. um, but you have a 19 year old kid. I mean, you know, when you're young, you don't really have a whole lot of patience. <laughs> you're like, all right, I give you three days. <laughs> you know, good enough. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I can see that happening with just 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 sort of the exuberance and impatience of, of youth. I mean, yeah, I, I guess it could be irresponsible, be viewed as irresponsible and unprofessional or, you know, or all these things. But um, it's also not surprising given the, given the guy's age. Um, so this is, I want to go a little further down the list. There's some other things uh, in, on, on, on OWASP. There's um, the third and fourth are uh, broken authentication and session management and insecure direct object reference. Mm -hmm. Both of those things I remember were a problem with, uh, I can't remember the name of the project. It was that open source competitor to Facebook. Do you remember what it was called? Either of you guys? Diaspora. Diaspora. Right. Diaspora. So, diaspora. so um, I, I remember Patrick McKenzie wrote a big article because he found these vulnerabilities that, and I think one of the key, I don't know if this is the title of the article or if it was just a subheading, but it was like, authentication does not equal authorization. So, like, if you logged in, once you were logged in, you could kind of access any object, right? It didn't check and say, okay, this, right. you know, belongs to you or whatever. And so you could, I don't know, I guess it's less a authentication session management problem than is an indirect, insecure direct object reference. So, I mean, do you have any, do you have any thoughts or any about, I don't know if you remember that article or that whole, um, I, don't know, I don't know, controversy that popped up, but uh, at least on those two subjects. You know, I, I'm not really familiar with that that instance, but one of the things that's interesting about insecure direct object reference, sort of as opposed to SQL injection and cross-site scripting, is that it's very hard to detect programmatically. So, right. for example, with cross-site scripting and SQL injection, one of the reasons why it's almost inexcusable to still have these in your code is that there are tools that can usually detect it. So if you run... Um, 
something like Veracode or there's there's sort of static analysis tools that will go through your code and look for for instances of these types of flaws, right? And so if you just run that, it'll give you a list of things you should fix. With insecure direct object reference, it's a lot harder to tell whether you should or should not have access. I mean, the case you mentioned where there's just no protection is kind of a worst case scenario. But in a lot of cases, maybe I can see my client's data, but not but I shouldn't be able to see anything outside of my project or something like that. You know what I mean? And so right. it gets very detailed, like the granularity of what you need to know to determine whether that vulnerability exists or not implies a, a really in-depth knowledge of like the data and who's supposed to see what. And it's not something that you can, you know, kind of automate very easily, um, if at all. Um, as an example, one of the places I, I mean, I've, I've been recently, we would, have a separate service to go keep track of all of our security infrastructure, right? So you'd make a remote call to go find out, is this person supposed to be able to see this thing, right? If you don't have that call, you obviously have this problem. But if you, even if you have the call, unless it, you, you can't verify that it's doing the right thing without knowing that that person is supposed to be able to see that thing or not. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. So you, you'd have to write some very specific unit tests, I guess security unit tests or something with deep knowledge of what, what the data is to detect this stuff, right? So do you, do you... And also the different, I guess, the different states of the um, authenticated user, whether they're an admin or a regular user or a guest or whatever. Right. Or even, even like within a project, like you're not even... even so yeah, you, you always have that sort of, you know, logged in user, admin, you know, guest or something. But even if you're a user, you could be like, okay, are you the person who created the project or are you just sort of a user? So it's something like you know, base camp or whatever. I mean, I, I haven't used it in a long time, so I don't really remember the privileges or whatever, but you could... There's, you, a, there's a whole model about that. Is it called ACL, access control language or something like that? Or access control layer? Uh, I think it's access control list, and it's basically, yeah, I mean, it's basically a model for how you decide whether, you know, a user or UID for that, you know, sort of for that case can access something. But even that, I mean, almost the, the bigger problem is that it's just not being checked and that people depend on their application not showing a list of projects. So, for example, let's say that I'm a customer and I have two different projects that I want two different groups of people to see, right? And if I restrict the, the list of projects that the first person is going to be able to see in the UI, then they can only click on those. And so I don't, a lot of people don't necessarily worry about what happens if somehow a request gets to the back end where Joe user, who's only supposed to see the projects in the, in the list, the first list, somehow sends a request to see the details for a project in the second list. Right. Right. Which is something that's very easy to do using one of the tools I'm sure we'll talk about later called burp to, to sort of get in the middle and muddle, muck with the request in flight. Um, but they sort of depend on the UI saying, well, you can't even see this. How would you know what idea it is? How would you know, you know what to do? Well, it's really not that hard to change it. You can't depend on the UI restricting what you see to prevent a request for something going to the back end, right? So you really need right. in the back end to be checking every time, should you show this to this user? Right, right. And I, you know, uh, that's something that, uh, anyway, I don't know if, I won't go too into this, but, um, you know, what I, sort of a, a project that I've worked on for a while called App Ignite, which is sort of a, I don't know, allows you to generate applications very quickly. So you kind of have this 
framework on the back end. And, and doing that actually is, is, is kind of tricky because you really have to be able to allow users who are building these projects to specify very, very carefully who has access to what. And it's, it's, it's right. It's like in every call, they have to be very, I don't know, you, you, it, the framework itself has to be really smart about it. And it's not easy. So one question I would have for you then, so most of us are writing this stuff by hand. Do you have like, like a checklist? I mean, right, we have these top 10 lists, these things that people screw up. Okay, fine. Well, it seems like there should almost be like a top, like a, a checklist of things that you need to do. Run this tool, run this tool. If that passes, right, you need to write, you know, and specifically for, say, um, you know, broken authentication and insecure direct object references that you should have like a, a best practice for writing security unit tests or something. That, that's a great idea. And there are some projects that are, that are oriented toward building security oriented unit tests. Um, I don't think that's gained as much traction as it, I mean, it's sort of a, I don't know if it's how new the idea is, but it's not something that you see a lot. Um, and to kind of answer your question, I mean, there's so many levels of maturity in an organization building software that the right answer for every organization is going to be different, right? So um, for a very small shop, I would say absolutely you should learn a little bit about some tools and run them and try to make do the best you can to make sure that, you know, these, these vulnerabilities aren't there. And we could talk about what tools I would recommend first and stuff like that in a bit. But, I mean you're not going to necessarily be able to do a pen test of every single different type of system you build, right? On the other hand, if you're a larger team or you're building something that has financial data or um, healthcare data, for example, yeah, I mean, you really need to, to have a number of different steps along your development process that ensure the code's going to be secure in the end. And that could be everything from you're definitely going to do a pen test at the end to your threat modeling at the beginning to you're doing code reviews along the way to you have a dedicated security person sitting in your stand-up meetings every day that's, you know, every day is looking at your attack surface and saying it's changing. We're adding a file upload functionality. That's good. That's an area that we need to test heavily and it's going to dive in and do that like while you're building it instead of after you're done. You know what I'm saying? You've, met, you've mentioned a few times that security isn't really kind of taking off in the general mindset. And I wonder if it's because it's a little bit like saying, you know, you better eat your greens if you want to stay healthy. Like it's that kind of a concept. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the other problem is that a lot of people don't know how to quantify their risk in the event of a breach. So unless I can say that, you know, it's going to cost me N dollars, it's hard to know what to invest in security. I see this a lot. And so that's one of the reasons why compliance kind of has an interesting role with security. I don't know if you guys kind of are familiar with the concepts of security and compliance. A lot of people who are sort of security purists frown on compliance because it sort of tries to codify what security means and by nature can't be perfect at it. On the other hand, you know, people who have to be, let's say, PCI compliant, they, there are certain things they have to do. And whether they're perfect or not, it's at least raising the bar a little bit for a lot of people. And um you know, that's where I think compliance has helped a little bit in terms of broadening um, people's adoption of security um, tools and, and, and awareness. But it's, it's, again, it's far from where it needs to be. I th- it almost seems like you could do a, um, like you could, get a cred- you could get a credential for your site as, uh, you know, almost like, so 
you know, a lot of financial organizations, hedge funds, as they give an example. So let, let's say um, a hedge fund is going to take, uh, a, you know, investors' money and invest it. And hedge, for hedge funds to attract new investors, they, they um, submit to an external audit. They say PricewaterhouseCoopers has audited us. These are our returns. This is our risk. This, you know, whatever. So the people putting their money in understand, you know, that everything's on the up and up, that there are specific, you know, financial metrics being applied and, and everything is, is done correctly. And it seemed like you could do something like in the same way with, with this. Like, and it's just like you might also do with a building. You know, if you build a, uh, if you build a house or you build a, a commercial building, you're going to have engineering. The city is going to send by. You have to be inspected. Right, mm-hmm. you put on a new roof. You build an addition to your house. Even small things like that, like a like a small addition to your house or, or, or whatever, you're going to have an inspector come by and say, "Right, that's done. Right, that's rent. Right. Um, otherwise, you can't continue." And not that I'm a big fan of onerous bureaucracy, so maybe it could be like volunteer. But it seemed like you'd have like a some kind of a verifi- third party verification or audit, a security audit company. This is, you know, we go in and, and we'll, we can give we can give you know complete full audit on all these things that we're talking about, like these top 10, you know, OWASP issues and, or whatever else, and say, you know, this, this, this site is, from our perspective, is, is absolutely secure. Is there any effort like that going on or any companies that are, that are offering that kind of a, a service? There, there are certainly many security companies that do auditing, and they do them per different types of standards. So um, security is impacted by certainly PCI, HIPAA, and high-tech, um, uh, Graham Bleach Liley, I think, is a is a banking uh, um, standard. Um, there's a there's a standard called SAS 70, which basically assures a certain level of security. The tricky part about all of them is that there are scoping and there there are complexities to them that make it very difficult for them to apply in the real world to real people and real systems. Um, so if you pick your compliance regime, there are companies helping their clients audit to those compliance regimes, but I don't think there's anything as clear and I'm not very familiar with hedge funds, so I don't know much about the the regulations there, but I don't know that there's anything as clear to say, here's your goal. Hardly anybody's saying, I want my whole organization to be locked down like the NSA, for example, right? <laughs> so what, where's your bar and, and who's asking? You know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, it just seems like you could have like, you know, level one, level two, level three or something just to make something up of, of, of uh, security uh, compliance. So for instance, you know, it could be an inexpensive one that, you know, runs a few thousand dollars or something like that. And they do they test for SQL injections and cross-site scripting, and they do, you know, you know, they generally try and, you know, to do all the standard stuff to see how, you know, they, they audit your, your hashing yeah. algorithms for your passwords. They check for direct, you know, like we're just talking about direct access. I mean, you know, so things like that of that nature. And then, it, like, depending on the kind of data you're, you're, um, you're concerned with that, you're, that you have of a user, how much damage you could call, cause a customer because you failed. Uh, your security was breached, that, you know, you could submit to, to higher levels. So, so, for instance, for Plugio, where Justin, you know, th- he, doesn't, he doesn't have any financial data. He doesn't have any real personal data. It's just, uh, you know, tweets and stuff. So, it, you know, like a level one would just be basic. You know, he would, anything, spending any money beyond that would just kind of be silly for him. But whereas a company that was maintaining 
more sensitive data, like you're talking about financial data, uh, health data, health records data, things like that, would have like a level two or level three. Um, I know I'm just speculating here, but there's not so there's nothing like that, right? What you're saying, there's no there's no there's no, and I don't mean like a private audit where you say you go in and the and the and the, and the, uh, and the security company says yeah you're you're secure and they just go okay, but like, there's like when they go to your site, like you can say we've it's almost like you have a badge or credential. Say we've submitted to this. We're you know we right. passed I mean, this kind of compliance or whatever. Right. I mean, I think that's that's true. That that doesn't exist now. There are uh, certainly across industries. Now there are within industries, like for example, PCI has different levels depending on how big a merchant you are and what type of systems you use. Like there are different things you have to do to prove that you're compliant with their security regulations, but those really don't apply outside of, I mean, they're not, they're not, they're not going to apply to, you know, any website. The only thing I'd throw back at you is, you know, think about so many websites now are pulling data from different places, right? I mean, and they're in a cloud dependent on, you know, third-party providers for different things. I guess to come up with one standard way to say, this is level one even, right? The simplest possible thing, right? is I, I love the idea. Um, I think there's a lot of logistical challenges to, to make it happen, but I mean, it's definitely worthy of further thought. So, well, I, this is a two-parter question for you. Um, so basically what I'm wondering is we often hear stories about supposedly very secure government organizations that get hacked. Like, why do we hear that so often? I mean, these guys have the money that you're talking about. They have the inclination that you're talking about, but they still get hacked. And the second part to that is, I guess due to the exponential nature of security, is it even possible to secure something, a company, from, from hackers like Anonymous? Is it possible? Those are great questions. Um, I think if you put yourself in the shoes of a, of a large government organization that's got tons of sensitive data and think about what a threat model would look like. Now, take threat model. It sounds probably confusing and fancy, but it's basically just a, a sense of, what data do you have? Who's going to want it? And how many different ways are they going to try to get it? I mean, just simply, right? So if you have um, nation states, for example, or um, you know, mafia or other organizations that are spending um, months of time to develop specific approaches for getting information out of you, you have a really hard job. <laughs> you have a really yeah. hard job. Um, and in particular, um, you know, one of the buzzwords in security lately has been APT, which is advanced persistent threat. And, you know, it's not a technology. It's not a specific thing. It's more like a really advanced attacker that knows how to combine different approaches. So a really good example that's been publicly talked about is, RSA. Now, RSA is a security company. They run one of the biggest security um, conventions that, that happens every year. And there are, there, you know, secure ID tokens got, that the, the algorithms that produce those got, got compromised. And, well, how did they get compromised? It started with somebody sent a spreadsheet containing fake information about raises to 40 people at RSA or something like that, right? Five of them opened it. When they opened it, 
their machines are now part, they're controlled by this group of people, presumably, who are attacking, right? Once you have control of a machine inside the perimeter, now you start looking for what else you can get to, right? And so things like firewalls become less relevant because you're already on the inside. Um, hmm. And so, I mean, I guess the answer is, I mean, if you are, if somebody's going to spend enough resources, you can't be safe. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, <laughs> that answers question number two. I think that's true. You know, the, the, the question is, where's your bar, right? What's your comfort level and how hard do you want to be? Um, i one of the news stories I linked to in one of one of my recent blog entries is this is about um, the bar. Like, are you tall enough to ride? Is your security organization tall enough to ride this 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 roller coaster? Right. And I mean, what they're saying is basically take like a framework such as Metasploit. Right. If somebody can hack into your systems with something that's just like point and click, you know, I can use Armitage on top of Metasploit point at your system and find a flaw, own your box, and then do whatever I want in your network. Like you're not even at the table for being secure. You know what I'm saying? And so that's where to me, um, you know, people need to get to is where, okay, there's a bar. They know there's a bar. They can start to understand some of the tools that make up that bar Right now, I would still say that a lot of applications are, other than like WordPress, Drupal, and the the basic, you know, sort of high yield um, web applications, I would say, you know, a custom application is still a little bit above the bar in general, right? It's not that easy to just say, I'm going to automate, I'm going to find every instance of this thing and go hack it, right? But if somebody's going to spend a bunch of time, there's a good chance they they can do something bad. Um, you know, unless you take proper precautions and that's where, you know, running some simple scans, making it look harder differentiates you from, you know, the next site on your host. <laughs> hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Thanks. So, yeah, I want to kind of blast through these remaining, um, uh, security risks, OWASP, uh, security risks, and then we'll get on to uh, some other, some of the tools maybe is, um, and, and I just want to kind of hear you know, if you have any thoughts on them, maybe maybe a quick explanation of each, and then uh, if you have any, you know, stories, thoughts, suggestions. Um, so we have cross-site request forgery or CSRF. Um, why don't you, yeah, why don't you give a quick explanation of that, and then uh, I actually have a question about it. So, I mean, the, the use case that that's easiest to understand for cross-site request forgery is you're logged into your bank, okay. So in your browser, in whatever browser you choose to use, you have a valid session to your bank. Now, I send you an email that has a link in it, and I manage to get you to click on it, right? Right. And the link is going to, let's say, do a delete of some account for the sake of argument. If you already have a session with your bank, when you click on that, the bank, if it doesn't protect from cross-site request forgery, might think that's a valid request that came from your browser that's valid, you know, that's been authenticated by you and perform that delete. And so to protect from CSRF, you basically, the, the sort of idiomatic way to do that is to produce a token that's unique per form basically every time you show it. And so even if you had a 
session cookie that's going to get sent because they're the, the, the victims logged in, you're not going to have a token for the form you're trying to submit that the backend is going to think is valid. Does that make sense? It's kind of hard to explain. Right. Yeah. I mean, actually, I actually implemented that um, with App Ignite, and then of course on AnyFoo is the um, is the unique token generation. So you you can create a co- you know use a GUID generator, stick it into a token, stick it to the form as a hidden variable, then repost it. Um, that kind of a thing. Um, so the the question is, I always found one problem I found with it. I haven't figured out a workaround, but like sometimes the problem is like if you hit the back button to go back to a form, like say you hit submit or something and you want to go back and like, and this can happen, especially if you're like in a wizard, mm-hmm. it'll, it'll like, you know, it, it kind of throws you off because to protect against the, 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 the request forgery, you, if the token isn't valid anymore, it throws you off into like, you know, to like, Hey, access invalid kind of a you know, right. page. So the problem is, is that if you hit next, you know, sometimes when you hit next, next and then back back or something all of a sudden it's invalid and it's like you're you know that's that's a crappy user experience because it's preventing you from doing something that you should possibly or probably be able to do um is it, do you have any ideas on how to how to manage that in a, in a user-friendly way or is that sort of outside your your range other than just getting the form again instead of you know what i mean and I, no i don't have a good a good answer okay. for that because Justin, you you didn't do that because I was showing you that and you sort of looked at me like you, you know I was doing something unnecessary, right? You you do you have another approach to deal with that, or you just weren't really dealing with that? Specifically? Well, what I do because every, everything's uh, AJAX on my system, so actually I do that with every single every single um, connection between the, ser- the service. So the server will give a, a token, and, and it's like a constant conversation between everything every single connection. So it's like um, a paired connection right. and. Um, it, it means that no one, you know, someone, someone would have to hijack it within one connection to get it, basically. It's almost like a sequence that hopefully is unpredictable that... Yeah, it's a random sequence, exactly. Right, that, yeah. that if, if, you know, there's, it just gets incremented every single time, right? But, yeah, I mean, for the case of a back, I don't, I mean, I'm, I think it, you'd have to kind of go into a little bit more technical detail to figure out a good way to solve that, I think. Right, right. Okay, the, the next one you have is, is um, security misconfiguration. Um, and I guess that was an example of that was the Rails vulnerability sure. we talked about, right? Um, so is there anything else, is there any other ideas or things you would suggest on that? Or, or, or is that, do you think we've covered that one? Um, well, I mean, the one thing I would emphasize here is this includes keeping all software up to date. I mean, I'm sure I'm looking at the same thing you are. Um, you know, so if you're running an application on a version of Apache that's really old, you know, there's there's a chance that there's an exploit for that version of Apache, and um, you know that's not really an application problem. It's really a you know sort of infrastructure problem in a sense, um, right? But it's a it's a big problem because people don't keep their software up to date. <laughs> right, right. And uh, the next is insecure cryptographic storage. So. You know, my understanding of that, I haven't read the details on it, but it's just you know hashing, say something like a password. So when using a, using a secure hash or protect or, or using a two way hash, if you're, if you need to encrypt something that has to be decrypted later. Um, so one thing I'll first ask you is about the secure is a one way hashing. So one thing that I used in app ignite, and then of course, therefore is used on any is for hashing passwords is, you know, using a, a, a salt. Um, so which is just like using a random, 
you need sort of like a random uh, GUID or something to yep. add to the uh, to the password. Yeah. And then stretching, which means you run whatever cryptographic hash you're running, you run it, you know, a hundred times or a thousand times or whatever, because then it just makes it, it means that makes it that it makes it that much more computationally expensive. Right. To, to do the same thing. And the third, of course, is picking a decent hash. Now, I hear people comp- you know, talk about, well, don't use you know, MD5 or don't use other ones because they're so, they've been, they're, they're so computationally cheap, inexpensive or they've been cracked in some way. Um, do you have any, uh, any recommendations on, on the hashing algorithm to use? I'd use SHA. And I think it's the latest is, is it five? 512 is the one. I, we use SHA-512. But I, and I'm wondering if that, there's, I think at least it's supported by PHP, you could use SHA-256 or SHA-512, I believe. Yeah, I mean, so I'm just looking at this. It's, it's you know, so 512 is the, 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 um, the size of the key. So you're using SHA-2 with a 512 key, mm-hmm. and, and that's, that's fine. Yeah, and because I, I, I remember reading a bunch of stuff that everybody's recommending uh, Bcrypt, which is, I guess, the Blowfish algorithm, if I'm not mistaken, because it was computationally expensive. Is that, is that what the big deal with that was? Yeah, although I think even... I think the, the only one that, that has sort of practical attacks right now, I think, is MD5. Okay. Um, but, you know, this is definitely something to kind of keep an eye on, but I think... Uh, if you're using the shot too, I think you're fine. I mean, it's not, that's, I think, widely considered to be, you know, a standard for that. Right, right. Because, I mean, because I guess what you have to be concerned about is the, is the rainbow table tax, right? So that you get like a, you know, get some like DVD or something, which will have like um, just a huge number of passwords that have already been, have already created the hashes of those, without, I guess without salts, I'm assuming. Um, and then just run those against a database if someone has been able to use a SQL injection to get your database and dump your users table and run against the uh, and compare all of their, you know, how many billions or trillions of or even more than that, <laughs> quintillions of uh, of hashes against your table. That's how it's done, right? Yeah. And 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 I mean, they can build a rainbow table for for. If they know what your salt is, they can build a rainbow table and then, you know, but I mean, building the rainbow table is probably comparably expensive to actually guessing one. So the rainbow right. table is most useful if you know you're going to guess a lot of times. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's what that's what the hash that's what the salt basically helps to prevent is right because you because you create a, and you create a unique salt for every single to prepend every single password. Let's say right. right? Okay, and um, and because I, I remember reading something too that someone had. Uh, used a bunch of Amazon EC2 instances using, I guess you can, they have like a GPUs you can actually set up as opposed to CP, just CPUs, which are incredibly efficient at doing sort of cryptographic computations. Yeah. And and there, the, the online, there are even online hash cracking services you can, you can pay by the, you know, CPU hour <laughs> to get, you know, a, a, a cracked hash, to crack a hash. Wow. That's it. Yeah. Huh. And, uh, okay, also, so one, sorry, this is off topic, but there are also services you can subscribe to which will crack CAPTCHAs where there are people on the other side reading the. <laughs> the oh, right. Like Mechanical Turk, CAPTCHA <laughs> cracking. Right. Great. So, um, and, then, and the next one is uh, failure to restrict URL access. I guess that's pretty 
obvious. It's almost that's true related to the insecure direct object reference. It, it, yeah, it is kind of related. It also means that you know you can guess where something's going to be, and even if something doesn't link to it, you can get to it. Um, yeah, I don't know. The the the, the solution in techno in different technologies is different. Um, in Ruby, your routes are pretty much going to dictate what people can get to. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, because that's that's exactly the same thing I did with uh, Epic Night or whatever is the own routing infrastructure. If it doesn't match one of the, one of your standard uh, URL routes then or whatever you want to call it, it, it your 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 you know URL not found or whatever. Yeah, uh, I experienced that last night while I was messing with anything. Okay, <laughs> okay, um, and uh, well, actually, okay, I want to go through these last two and then we'll talk about the Anyfoo because you said you did you did some sort of basic testing on Anyfoo and might have some. Feedback for us. So, the last two I want to talk about are just they're listed here are insufficient transport layer protection. Well, what is that exactly? I mean, that's just like are you using SSL? Oh, okay, right. Are you using are you using good algorithms? I mean, one very common mistake that people make is they think, oh, it's an internal application. I don't really need to worry about it because how's anybody going to see the data anyway? I see. Right. And you know, with ARP spoofing, and you can pull off a man-in-the-middle tack very easily, so you need to be using something um, like, a, I mean, like SSL and a, um, you know, you don't want to support the weak algorithms either. I mean, there's pretty, the, the information out there is pretty good about which ones are sort of current. I'm so sure what you're saying, so even in an internal network, so if you have a bunch of servers, you've gotten through your sort of, you know, your uh, your front-end proxies or whatever, and you're going to, you're, you're, between databases or whatever, you have your back-end infrastructure um, pieces. You're saying you should be using some type of SSL even between those boxes? M I mean, my personal recommendation is to use SSL all the time. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. Because, okay. Because if, I, if I'm sitting in your network, I can, see, I can basically see anything you're doing. I mean, I can get in between you and your server with minimal effort. I see. And actually... I mean, this is another area where user training is really important because um, I can do that to external sites as well, and I can do it even when you're using SSL, but you're going to lose your sort of lock and cert. But I can basically downgrade your SSL connection to a non-SSL connection and see the data that you're sending across plain text, and then, you know, the only thing you're going to notice is it's not... You know, it's not actually using the cert. Okay, so how, how, paying attention. You're saying you could do that how? So you basically, so you use a like EdRCap to do ARP spoofing, and you tell I would basically tell your machine that I'm the I'm the server you're going to, or the router, and then I would send or the switch, whatever, and then I would send data that you send me back out, right? Okay, and then. On that same socket, I basically, you could use a tool that like Moxie Marlin Spike wrote called SSL Strip that'll basically pull the SSL off that connection going out. So you're basically, unless you're like Google, this is one of the reasons it's so important for, for services to force SSL. Because if I'm going to Gmail or something like that and it doesn't require me to be coming over SSL, then I can just stop sending the cert, right? And send you back the response that Google gives me as if it was an unprotected connection. And so, but this, and, and I'll, is this an instance of a man in the middle attack? Yes, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. How do, 
okay, how do you, how do hackers create a man in the middle attack? I mean, what's the setup for that? So they need to be basically on, I mean, the, the typical case is that they need to be on your local, sort of on your local network. So, um, because they want to be between you and your closest switch. Okay. So, so, so somehow they have to gain access to your network using right. some kind of tool. Right. So once they're on your network, they're basically telling the switch that they're you and telling you that they're the switch. And so, wow. okay. And that just works based on ARP, which is a protocol sort of beneath what you're, what most people even ever think about. It's right. like below a TCP IP. Yeah. I mean, it's like, how do I know which MAC address to send this stuff to? Right. You're basically telling the switch that, that I'm this IP address and I'm attached to this MAC address. And so and if I'm the attacker, right, I'm going to say I'm, you know, 192.168.1.10, whatever, and my MAC address is 00000, whatever it is. You know what a MAC address looks like. Then I'm going to tell you that the router's MAC address is 000000, and I'm going to basically take anything that comes from you to me because you think I'm the switch now. And I'm going to send it out to the, to the actual switch, right? Get a response that's going to come back to me because it thinks I'm the person at that MAC address. And then I'm going to send it back to you. Does that make sense? Yeah. And now, how, okay. There, 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 there are some ways to prevent this. Like there's, there's things that you could do to like watch to ARP tables. Um, because basically you could think about it as like a routing table. There's a table of who's what. And when they change, you know, you can tell. Um, right. There are also tools that, that basically prevent this kind of prevent people from getting on your network at all by it's, it's kind of like what you do with your wireless network where you say you're going to restrict a certain Mac addresses can even join. So you can't even get on the network unless, unless you're sort of pre, um, pre-approved IP address or Mac exactly. address. Right. Right. And, and, um, okay. Well, I guess we've got enough on that. I was going to, I should probably move on because I know we're kind of running out of time. The, the last one was unvalidated redirects and forwards. What's, what's the issue with that? What does that mean exactly? Well, it basically means that you can bounce through somewhere. Um, so you could think about it as, um, gosh, it's, I'm having trouble thinking of a specific example. But um, let's say that I could go through somebody's website to go do something else. Um, then I can put a link in to their website that's going to forward through to serve them malware or something like that. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. How do you protect against validated redirects? I mean, because redirects normally are something that you write in the back end or whatever. You say, okay, uh, you know, after you submit a form, then you bounce them to this page, or you know, if they try and access something they're not supposed to, you bounce them to this invalid access denied page or something like that. I mean, what do you what do you unvalidated redirects? Well, so if let's say that I get a request, and in the request is some data that goes into determining where I'm going to forward or redirect to. So, like, let's say I'm looking at stores and I want to go look at registers, right? And so I'm drilling through to registers. Maybe the, the URL or the request says something about um, registers, and then that's how I decide which, which controller I'm going to use to respond, right? Well, if I don't say that these are the, the, the places that you can forward to, some types of 
of infrastructure will say, oh yeah, go, just keep going and um, forward somewhere that's not within the application. Like they won't process that input and do sort of like the whitelisting thing we talked about before, where it, you should only kind of be able to go to these types of places. I don't know if I'm making sense. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, let's um let's let's move on a little bit because I I want to ask you about a few different things. Um, well, I guess what we should you 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 said you did a little bit of um basic testing on any foo, and I'd like to maybe go through what you found or didn't find. Sure. So. I mean, I basically did this because I was trying to figure out how to talk about some of these tools in a way that would be interesting. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing I did was try to just get background about Anywho, um, Anyfoo. And I also looked at uh, Texting Live because I figured they both would be interesting. And the first thing I did was I used a tool called Maltigo, which is a, basically a Java-based application that allows you to find out background information about a site using what it calls transforms that are essentially lookups through common services. They could be Google searches, they could be name server searches, they could be, um, you know, um, like I said, DNS lookups, stuff like that, to figure out sort of who you are. And so, like, one of the interesting things I found with Maltigo is, right, it's so it'll resolve your, your name to an IP. And I can tell from that, then I can reverse resolve the IP to other names. So from doing that, I can see that um, Anyfoo is running sort of by itself on a server, but um, but Texting Live is running on an IP that also hosts loveandrelationshipworld.com. That, is that your other big site there, Justin? Justin? Oh, I've got quite a few like that. <laughs> <laughs> I've also got rubber, rubber gloves and cows.com. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 Justin, you're writing that on a shared. That's on a shared hosting server. You you say, Ten bucks. Okay, a right. So, so how how and so this thing can look can kind of reverse look up and find out all the other. Right. So yeah. it's just a handy tool. I mean, you could do a lot of those things with command line tools, but it's a visual tool that makes it easier. Um, even some of this you can find out with Dig and Who Is right. So I could find out the address associated with AnyFoo. I could find out an email for for Jason associated with the the AnyFoo registration. Um, that's not the same one that, that, that maybe I already know or, or something. Um, and so then, you know, one of the first things I would do is actually not the kind of attack that you might think. Um, I might look at doing sort of more of a social engineering attack. Um, other things that just before I move past this though, some of the other things I might look at are like, oh, well, who do you know on LinkedIn? Who do you know on Facebook? Who's on Twitter? Yada, 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 right? What do I know about you? And the reason that I care about that is because then I can start to to um, craft my social engineering effort to sort of sound reasonable to you, right? So, for example, I used Set, which is called which is the social engineering toolkit. Um, so it's comes on Backtrack, which is a, a pen testing distribution of Linux that's based on Ubuntu. Um, and Set is a really cool tool. It's also very closely related to Metasploit. What SET allows you to do, or what I did, was basically copy the texting live site, so basically make it look exactly like your site, and embed an applet in it that would take over a machine that goes to it, right? So then I might combine that with um, an email to, to you, Jason, and from an, you know, a disposable address at Google that sounds like Justin, and say, hey, look, this guy's copying our site or something like that, right? 
And if you ever, if I could do anything that would get you to go there, I own your machine, right? Now, maybe your machine is useful to me, to me in this case or not. I'm not sure. Because I'll go and log in to your machine using my username and password. No, is meaning that how you would own if it. You just, if you just browse to this site, I've got I've embedded an applet in it that essentially um, ha- exploits known vulnerabilities in the JVM that are running in a browser. Um, that'll work on, and then I can actually craft which kind of which kind of exploit I want to use. Um, you just have to go there, Jason. That's all. You just go there, and I get it. I literally on my machine, I get. Oh, I've got a session from this computer at this IP address. Your computer pushes out, talks to me, and says, "Hey, um, what do you want me to do?" And I can then do anything I want. I can attach. I mean, one of the coolest things I can do is actually migrate this process that gets created into another process on your computer. Um, right. But I can see, you know, what processes are running. Um, when I when I ran this myself, the first thing it did was pull all my my private SSH keys, <laughs> right? It's right. like, oh, who's the current user and .ssh pull all the the SSH keys, right? Um, what about Macs? I mean, if so, if if we were to go to this place you're describing, would you be able to own our Mac? Well, so this the Java applet that I used in the in the example I was using, I have to actually give it authority because I think the the Mac version of Java is not susceptible to this vulnerability, but there are other, um, I believe there are other vulnerabilities that would make it so that this would work on a Mac. I haven't actually tried, tried them myself, to be honest. Right. Okay. So, all right. So did, did anything that you run, any of these tools that you use, did they find anything that you could have exploited? I mean, aside from the social engineering, assume you would be able to, assume you were not able to social engineer us. Right. So Um, let me talk about one other thing I would do, and then we could talk okay. about whether I actually compromised you. Because I, I, well, I'll, I'll, yeah. So the next thing that is interesting is to use Nmap. So Nmap is basically a network. It's for network map, I think. <laughs> um, right. And what it'll do is basically look at what ports are open on your machine. And so for AnyFoo, um, you know, you had SSH on port twenty-two. You had what looks like MySQL on thirty-three hundred six. And then you had 80 and 443, which is pretty good. If I were you, I would try to think about whether to keep 3306 open. I couldn't connect to it because it looked to me like it, it's not letting you connect from anywhere. Um, right. So that's good. Um, but something like having, having MySQL visible externally is just generally not a good practice. Um, the issue with SSH, having SSH open, is that I could start to use a tool like Hydra to brute force it. Basically use a dictionary of, you know, pick, pick a, a list of users and then try a bunch of passwords. And I might be able to guess one that's actually right for your SSH login there. So if we have, but if we have a, a pretty secure password, because we have, ultimately you have to be able to SSH in your machine, right? I mean. Right, exactly. And so the best thing so, you can really do there is have, you know, a strong password. Well, but okay. it's not it's not just that. I mean, if someone tries to brute force attack it, I mean, it's locked Jason out because he keeps forgetting the password. So it puts him into no, the no, deni- no, no, that, it, no, that was that was that wasn't it. That it had puts him into the deny the deny host. Well, well, it would do that anyway. It yeah, would put that's, someone. That's who, it would put someone into the deny host file once they'd um, failed three times. Yeah, but that's not what happened. So what happened? The reason I got logged out is if the session the session would just expire after. 10 minutes or something automatically and it would automatically throw it into that deny session after an expiration. 
for some reason. So we had to we had to deal with that. So, um, but yeah, okay. So aside from um, so go on. You said you had something you want to talk about Nmap. But they, so we should shut down. We should shut down thirty three oh six if we're not using that. Yeah, if you can hide thirty three oh six, that'd be good. On on texting live running Nmap was much more fruitful. There were a lot of open ports, um, and sort of the next step. The next thing I did was run Nessus, which is a vulnerability scanner, to see if any any of the things that we identified on those ports had known vulnerabilities. And it gave me a list of 50 things for AnyFoo and 150 for Texting Live. But none of them were medium even. I, I don't think any of them were at a level where you'd need to worry about them. Well, te- the Texting Live is just on like a HostGator account, so... Right. That's that's well. It's it's WordPress on HostGator. It's yeah. WordPress on a shared. It's, it's worst server case scenario, server. really. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you so, can't really you can't go close those ports, is what you're saying. Yeah, we we can't. It's completely shared. Yeah. And and I mean but, the, the issue is that even if even if host even if HostGator, I think it is, or whoever it is, you know, is keeping this stuff all up to date. Um, you know, the other issue with texting live is it's sitting on a server that other things are running on. So if somebody else has an application that has a vulnerability and I can own that box. Yeah. Right. And, and escalate privileges outside of what their application has. Now I can do something else too. Now, obviously texting live is not, you know, (laughs) it's fine. It sort of seems appropriate for what it's doing. Yeah. Because it's, you know, it's just hosting, um, kind of WordPress blog and nothing else. Right. But kind of the end of that, statement, and again, I don't mean to sort of launch in, but one of the things that's really hard about security is, okay, you get a report with 150 vulnerabilities or, or items about one host. Is that useful? Is that actionable? What does that mean? Um, a lot of them are, are confusing. Like this looks like it's running an old version of, it's supporting an old SSL cipher suite. Does this matter? Why does this matter? Um, and it's the kind of thing that it's, I think it's very hard as a developer or even operations person to, to kind of know how important these types of findings are. And that's where I think security folks can do a better job in terms of communicating, you know, what's important and what's not. That makes sense. Right, right, right. I, I noticed that the, the one, um, cause you, you sent me a, a list of some of this, um, I guess a log or output of, of the nmap i believe that was the file and it was the one thing i kept complaining about like like a like a good portion of the complaints was that there we had password we had passwords that had autocomplete on the form right right like which is obviously which is great because that's easy to fix it takes right right two seconds but that just means that you could leave i am if i'm guessing that right that means that someone can walk in and sit down at your desk assuming you know you're in office somewhere and log in right Right. It also means that somewhere your browser has that data. Mm-hmm. And even if it's just a username, that's not something you really want to have there. Because let's say somebody compromises your browser. You don't want that to be an avenue for them to start to gain information about how to get into that app. Got it. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, because anytime, anytime somebody uh, any, on any machine, any of our users gets their... Uh, browser compromised, then they can their account information on our site. So financial information or something could be compromised because they could get into their. They couldn't get anyone else's, but at least they could get theirs. Right, and it, it doesn't right, make it right. impossible. I mean, if if I own your box, I might have a keylogger on it anyway, right? So it doesn't right, make right. it like it's impossible to do it. It's just 
that that's probably why it's low. It's just sort of a better practice not to not to autocomplete things like username and password. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a good yeah, point. change. One one thing that we've done, which is you know, like we use Stripe for our financial stuff, so that not you know, or at least for our credit card processing, so none of the financial information ever hits our hits our site. And then when we have to get banking information, people want their um, funds transferred directly to their account ACHs. We encrypt everything using OpenSSL, and you know, obviously the private key is stored not on the servers anywhere and, and in a secure location. So, I mean, I guess I guess the other key thing is too is you limit the type of sensitive information that you even would allow on the site. Definitely, that's right? one of the most important things to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, and, social and security number, for instance, is not is encrypted is encrypted using OpenSSL and the keys are out and the private keys off the site. Right. And, and, you know, there are different levels of paranoia with regard to encryption. I mean, a lot of people will use one key to encrypt data and then they'll use another key to encrypt the key. (laughs) Wow. So there are sort of layers of access. Um, You know, the interesting thing about cryptography is, Almost none of the hard, well, I shouldn't say this because I'm not a cryptanalyst and, you know, the math behind it is really interesting to me, but not, you know, advances are not necessarily all that interesting to me. The hard part about, about encryption as a developer is not the actual encryption, it's the key management. Right. So did you find any, uh, so were there any vulnerabilities or things that we need to be concerned about other than the MySQL vulnerability? MySQL, not MySQL vulnerability, but the open port. No, I, I mean, I don't think there would be anything where I'd say, hey, you have to change this right now. Okay. I did look with, with Burp, I did look at, at Anyfu a little bit, and there were a couple of things I noticed that I thought were interesting um, that might be worth um, talking about. One is okay. that um, it looks to me like my PHP session doesn't change. So I can log in, log out, log back in, and that session cookie is still the same. The good news is that when I try to post after I've logged out, it doesn't accept it. So it won't let me replay. Like, so one of the things I'll do is go in and alter a, you know, alter a profile, right? I'll alter my profile and, and then I'll log out and I'll replay that post. I'll basically have burp send that same exact post again out of the context of the session and see if it'll change data. Right. And it didn't let me change data but when I logged back in again, it looked like I had the same session ID. So I don't exactly understand how that's working. Um, but it might be something to look at. Right. That's interesting because we just use sort of default. Um, I should say we. I guess it's it's me because I this is all based on the uh, App Ignite framework. And I mean, I'm using the standard you know PHP session management stuff. So um, you know, you just you log out, you destroy a session you know, unset session variables. Um, but you're saying that the same session cookie is reused or cookie or session, I yeah. guess, whatever it's to- the, the funny thing about that is, is that the biggest complaint we've had so far from experts is why doesn't the system keep me logged in? Yeah. <laughs> so, we, <laughs> so we, we may have the session there in cookie format, but for some reason it's just not working and uh, we'll, we'll need to work out what that's, what that's all about. I also didn't, and, I, and so you mentioned that you have CSRF protection. I didn't see where that was happening, so I may have just missed that. It's very possible. Mm-hmm. Typically, you know, that looks like we talked about, like a unique token, either, you know, in a form or something like that. And I maybe I just didn't see it, but I That's going to be in, I think, 
in stuff that's generated by the by the um, app ignite generation code but a lot of the stuff that we've doing has been manually coded so we haven't been doing that on a form by form basis no no actually that's not quite correct so the all the forms were generated using app ignite i just altered them after after the basic versions of them were up. I, I made some small alternation alterations to them, so they did have all of the um, the uh, CSRF token, you know, protection stuff. And I think on one or two of them, I temporarily disabled it because it was really screwing up the experience because it was like in a wizard format. Mm-hmm. Um, but I because I couldn't figure out how to use a token without making it so that you know when you're going back to the wizard, it was kind yeah. of Every third or fourth time you do that, it would send you off into like URL incorrect, you know, you know URL not found or, or, or whatever my, you know, I think it was uh, access invalid or something like that. So um, I think, but since we're not using the wizard formats anymore, I think I'm just going to reimplement that. But yeah, I mean, that was, um, that was something I temporarily disabled because I was a little frustrated with the user experience. But I think uh, you disabled know. the registration, right? Yeah, I think I disabled it in the registration. Because the registration process was the forms that it was... Because the forms that in the, that in the registration process used to be in a wizard, but then we took it sort of out of a wizard format. And, um, gotcha. and so it's, just, it's they're all essentially the same forms. So it was just the navigation you know, changed a little bit. The, the reason that I know that is because I was going to try to register another user because I, I noticed some interesting identifiers in the, in the payloads back and forth that right. looked to me like IDs for, well, me for example. Right. Right. And I was curious whether I could change that and get data to show up. And I'm, I'm sure that it's not possible. I didn't see it, but that would definitely be something I would verify. Right. You know what I mean? Like I shouldn't be able to obviously change any of that, like the idea of what thing I'm looking at and have it change who I'm seeing. Um, particularly on a post that's changing data. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we definitely. I definitely check against all of that. That's something I think I've been pretty good about. Um, and that's yeah. that's the that's one of the benefits of using, I guess, a, you know, some kind of a framework that you've just been testing and testing, which is like making yeah. sure that uh, you know, right? You're testing about the not just that you're authenticated, but that this the user ID in the session set on the server side session matches the user ID of, you know, of the objects you're manipulating or viewing. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that's it. So um, I want to get to. Um, there's two last things. I know we're we're kind of just about out of time here, but um, I want to ask you about your um, your startup um, and what you're building. But before I do that, is there anything more of the tools that you want to talk about that we should be aware of? Um, yeah, really. Intercap and Backtrack and stuff like that. Well, Backtrack is is a great place to start if you have if you're interested in security because it's a it, you can basically download a virtual machine or an ISO which is a, you know, basically a Ubuntu-based system that comes with a lot of these tools already installed. If you're, you know, for developers, I would suggest learning how to use Burp, um, okay. Burp Proxy. Um, and I have a blog post about how to do it with a video that explains sort of how to get man. It's basically man in the middling your app to the server to be able to mess with uh, parameters. Okay. Um, I would also recommend learning a little bit about Nmap just because it shows you so much about what's happening. Um, I guess the other thing I'd mention is that a lot of what's hard about security is that there are so many different tools. Like there's a WordPress scanner that just scans WordPress for to tell me what themes you're running. You know what I mean? 
And they're right. like sort of one-off tools that people write. And the hard part is as, as, a, as a developer is not, is, is not getting confused by that sort of all the detail and getting overwhelmed, right? Fundamentally, what you want to know is what's on the network and what's your app doing. And, you know, Burp's not the only tool that can do, a, that, that can do an attack proxy, but it's a good one and it's free to do um, basic proxy stuff. And so, you know, it, it's a good way to open your eyes into what's happening. If there's one takeaway, I would say, try Burp. <laughs> right, right. Um, so let's, yeah, let's talk about um, your, your startup and, and, and the uh, products you're creating, because I think they could be, you, you know, interesting to know about and potentially use as a, as a developer. Cool. Um, so the first thing I'm working on is called, I'm calling it Honeyfield. If you know what honeypots are, it's basically a place where you collect information about attacks. And okay. so these are commonly used to see, oh, now we're seeing, you know, a recent one was PHP my admin. There's a bunch of people that are, you know, they're seeing requests for that. Well, if you see requests that don't look normal, but you don't know what they are, they might be a foreshadowing of there's actually a vulnerability there. The idea behind Honeyfield is to sort of combine that concept with Google Analytics, for lack of a better <laughs> example, basically to be, provide developers with a tool set to instrument their applications so that when somebody attacks their application, they know about it. Right, right now, a lot of times, you know, security vendors sell into IT or operations, and whether those tools are effective or not, developers basically hand off code and they're done. And so you almost never as a developer say, oh, I know I've, got, I've been attacked. And yeah. I think that's where there's value, right? If you know you're being attacked, you can start to justify an investment in a security program. Um, so the idea behind it is you get a WordPress plugin, you get a simple Ruby gem, you get some really simple ways of doing the integration into an application. And then sort of the server is all the analytics around collecting information about what's happening and presenting them to you in a way that tells you, like, this is interesting or you're lucky nobody cares about you or whatever. <laughs> So, so no, so that so so that you have a, a you have a Ruby gem and a WordPress plugin so far, as part those of are both, as, I'm actually still working on both of those. Will there be a will there be a, a a PHP library that we could say integrate with any foo? Definitely, the, the 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 WordPress plugin would be based on a generic PHP you know library slash object set that would you'd be able to use directly in a non WordPress application. Right. I guess that sounds pretty useful. And how would you sell something like that? Would it just be like a one-off or a license or what? Um, well, my thinking was to do it with a um, volume sort of model where if you use it and you sample, you decide you want to sample 50 things a day, it's free, right? You, okay. you want to sample a lot more stuff, then it starts to cost more money. Basically, you know, initially at least recouping the costs of the higher volume. Um, in the longer term, I think um, you still want to, I still want to have sort of the, the, the sort of free tier, but I don't know exactly where the lines are going to be for that, just so that, you know, people can get a little bit of the value of it without, you know, buying into it. But then for companies that really want to know everything that's happening, they'll want to, they'll want to, sort of subscribe and know here's intelligence. And the thing that's cool about it that I didn't mention is, you know, if you get a bunch of people that are doing it, you start to get collective intelligence about what, who's attacking who and, and what the attacks are. 
And that's something that you can present in a way that's, you know, so I can tell you, hey, you know, any foo should block requests from this IP, for example, because they're attacking texting. You know, uh, so you, you could ultimately have this stuff, um, like people could connect into your central server and um, it could just be sort of a smart network. That's you know, the, if I, you know. Yeah, I wouldn't, I don't want to characterize it as a smart network or like an agent or anything like that. But let's say that, you know, you're sampling requests in your, in any foo and every 10th one, you know, you look at, I don't know, name or location, something that's pretty innocuous, right? And if it doesn't, if it hits a certain criteria, right, it's got any non-alphanumeric character in it, for example, um, or it's very large, it'll get pushed to Honeyfield as like a, you know, just an API touch. And Honeyfield will say, oh, okay, I see um, any foos getting attacked by this thing, right? Or, and, and so you, the, the nice thing about that is you get to put the logic that parses the attacks on the server and you don't have this sort of antivirus problem where you have to push out updated signature sets all the time to everybody who's using it. So the right. library for the, for the developers is, is hopefully pretty simple. And one of the other things I want to sorry, I don't mean to go off the deep end, but one of the other things I want to do is provide a standard set of exceptions and scenarios for like the insecure direct object reference. Like, you know, in your code, if somebody's accessing something they shouldn't access. So you can fire an event to track that. But most people don't. They just throw an error. You know what I mean? So would you, would this thing like generate an automatic email, like a, you know, attack alert or something like that? Um, it, it certainly could. Um, I guess part of what I was hoping is that, you know, for a lot of people, if they're getting scanned, there are going to be, you know, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of requests coming at them, right? So you don't even need to know the first time that you're getting attacked. You just need to know the 10th time or the 50th time before they get in, right? right. So what you can do is, is basically sandbox the person who's making that request so that they don't get any more real data and their attack will never work. And so I, the idea in the long run is to make it so that you can make your app responsive to somebody attacking it and basically divert their requests to a no-op or something, right? So it's a little bit of a self-healing, self, you know, like a, it, it kind of creates its own security. Right. That, that self-healing part comes with a lot more complexity around performance for your app, um, how you decide how often you're going to block, how often you're going to sample, all that kind of stuff. Um, so initially, I'm just thinking really about metrics, like information. But in the longer term, when you have the information, I think you can start to make decisions. Yeah, no, that's, that's very cool, sort of an adaptive system, adaptive security model. So, but, you know, I would think that you know, if if initially you know you know you're just collecting information and and ultimately you're just logging it, I would think that you might want to set up some sort of thresholds for when you notify. You know, maybe that's customized. Say, I want to be notified when X Y ha happens, or at least I want a daily, I want a daily update. You know, email just sends me. So here's your attack profile or something, and then and it'll send me a just in time alert if it's like something that's like really critical. Um, because I could see myself being like, okay, I'm really interested in security. I want to be careful. But then you just kind of forget after a while. You just get distracted by the stuff and like, you just forget to go look at your logs and a week goes by and you've, and it's too late. You're right. done. Yeah. That's, uh -huh. a, that's, that's a really good point. I mean, yeah, cause you know, it's like the whole thing about security is that for security people, they think about security all the time for non-security people. We don't think about it every once in a while, but that's not enough. <laughs> and so we're just going to forget, you know, it's just like. You don't mean to be negligent. You're just, you know, you're putting out a fire. You're responding to customer issues. You're adding, you're trying to get some new feature out the door, and you don't think about security for a week or two or a month. 
And, and I'm sure plenty of people don't really don't think much about it. I mean, they might claim they think about it, but they probably don't think much about it for months at a time. Right. And um, especially if they, if they remember installing some security system that's supposed to help them, and they're like, oh, yeah, okay. It's like I, I planted my attack dog out front. I can kind of go to sleep now and just chill and not worry about it. But, right. You know. <laughs> that's a great analogy. So, you know, uh, I, and I know for myself, it's just it's easy to get lazy. So, for instance, one thing we just implemented was a cron script to pay out our experts on any foo. Mm-hmm. And um, initially, I wrote it without being a cron script. It's just kind of I'd, I'd run it manually. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say, okay, well, for the first week, I'm just going to run it manually just to make sure there are no problems. So if there's problems, I can, I can see it. And after three or four days, already for three or four days, like a day would go by and I like forgot to run it. I'm like, <sighs> how can i forget to run all i have to do is click a url but i forget you know you just it's just i mean maybe it's just me maybe i'm bad at remembering my daily task list you know i mean other people are really good at that but i just have so much going on that i forget and so luckily you know after a couple of false starts we got uh the cron script running yesterday so it's all fine so every day it runs in the morning and it runs through and finds out who needs to get paid and does all the things it needs to do. So I would think the same thing with security. Oh, and then sends me an email or sends Justin and I an email and says, Hey, this is what happened. You know, mm-hmm. this is who's getting paid. This is who's getting paid. This is what you need to do. This is how much money you need to move to this account or whatever. But, um, I think for the security, you probably, you probably want to do something similar just for us, uh, lazy people out in the field, <laughs> you know, yeah, who, uh, it's yeah. For, who forget to eat their greens when they're supposed to. As Justin said. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, well, um, is there anything you'd like to tell us about, uh, any more about uh, what you're working on? Again, we're just, we're, we're pretty much over time at this point, but I want to make sure we give a chance to let you tell us anything cool that you're working on or trying to do. Well, I guess, I mean, the main, the main thing that I still have sort of to, to take away is just, you know, when you look at the, the examples of the, the reports I sent you, you'll see, you know, hundreds of vulnerabilities, which you may know or not know are significant for you. Um, you know, part of what I guess I envision doing differently is helping to close that gap with developers. And I'm open to other ideas. I mean, this Honeyfield project is, I think, cool, but I think there are other things. I would love to hear developers' input about how to empower them with information, with tools, with you know, anything that they can think of to sort of figure out how to effectively deal with security. Because right now, I really think the biggest problem is just that, you know, it's kind of a cool topic when it's cool, but nobody wants to talk about it when there's a problem or, you know, when it's not, you know, when it gets in the way of a deadline or anything like that. And so I guess my whole mission with Gemrai is to, to try to build tools that bring developers into the process in a way that they can digest and, um, make security something that people can kind of understand and approach rationally and not, you know, sort of purely out of fear, which unfortunately right. is the case. Right. And um, so and we're going to set you up as a, you've already registered as an expert on any foo. And um, I think we're going to, I think, I can't remember if it's been, a, we've approved, officially approved it or not. So we're going to, I think we wanted to work with your profile just a little bit, just to kind of hone it uh, a little bit, but as we pretty much want to do with all our experts, but yeah. You know, you, so people can hire you through any food for an hour at a time and really get get some help, some personalized help on their security issues, right? Right. And and that could go, be anything from, you know, hey, I have a problem. I don't really know what to do with it to, you know, 
I'm trying to think about where security should fit in my priorities. You know, what, what's the right, what's the right level of investment, you know, and I may not know, you know, a perfect answer, but I'm, I think going to be a good sounding board for that discussion. Right. So you can help them like, look, pick out tools, run this tool, do this, check into this. Yeah. So basically help them maybe get together a strategy for how to, how to secure their harden their uh, system a little bit and, and keep things at a certain level of, uh, of secure, of, of a certain level of security. Yeah, one, one example of something I did recently that I think might be a good fit for what um, what Anyfu was doing is um, I was working with a company that was going through the Salesforce security sort of gauntlet. Um, basically, to get an app listed on the App Exchange with Salesforce, you have to um, pass this certain sort of set of, set of security tests. And so they would get these reports back from the testers, and they just didn't know what to do to their application to fix it. And so what I could do is sort of look at the report, figure out based on their code, you know, what the issue was going to be and, and help them actually kind of close that loop, get their app out into the app exchange. And obviously that had value for them because their customers wanted to use it and they were sort of hung up on this weird security issue. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it seems to me that, I mean, I haven't done a lot of research on this, but when I looked around at penetration testing, it seemed to be pretty expensive. I mean, it was really for bigger companies. I didn't really see them marketed at startups you know, who people who say, Hey, you know, I could maybe afford, you know, a few hundred dollars or 500 bucks or something. I can't, I can't spend five, 10, $20,000 on something. So it sounds like if someone worked with you, they could do it kind of get your, get your help and, and, and letting it, letting them sort of do it themselves. So here, here's what you want to do. Here are the tools you want to do. I'll tell you how to use them. I'll tell you what you need to think about and worry about. And you can come back later at another session if you want some more help. Right. That's definitely my goal. Yeah. Is, to, okay. is to empower the customer. Now, I should say I am not a pen tester, or you know, uh, you know, I don't go find buffer overflows in esoteric C libraries. You know, I mean, that's not right. what I do. What I do is build applications, and I can help you do that securely. That's basically what I do. Cool, cool. Well, I think that's a show. Um, we've we've been talking for almost two hours here, right? Yeah, Justin? we've got some great information. It's fantastic. I really appreciate your time, guys. It was fun. I was yeah, nervous thanks. about it, but it's been fun. <laughs> <laughs> we try and make it as painless as possible. Well, just as a scary guy, you gotta. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't help by saying just by by starting the show by saying let's make this a good one. No pressure. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Well, uh, yeah. Again, th- thanks for coming on the show. We really appreciate uh, you taking the time, and uh, I definitely feel like I, I learned a lot. So, uh, and hopefully our listeners will will as well. Um, so, I guess that's a wrap. We're out. <laughs>